The criticism from Kotzko's perspective would be that Martin's still being a little bit reductive, and then Martin is saying, yeah, but you're not paying enough attention to the conditions under which these identity concerns are formed. Hey, what is going on, people? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast we can bullshit with impunity. I'm Austin Hiddensmith. And I'm Troy Polidori. And this week we're going to be looking into a conversation that was published on the Stanford University Press blog between Martin Konings, who is a political economist and social theorist at the University of Sydney, and Adam Kotzko, who is a continental philosopher of religion? What is is that? What would you call him? Yeah, yeah, philosopher of religion, political theologian, something around there. Yeah, at Shimmer College. Is he still at Shimmer? I always thought it was Shimer, but yeah. Oh, Shimer. Like Maybe yeah. it's Shimmer. Shimmer Shimer. It should be two M's. Oh yeah, good point. Shimer. Shimer sounds good. Uh, in the United States, it's a conversation that they had about. Uh, neoliberalism and about critiques on that uh, governmental regime based on their two respective books, which kind of address it from uh, different directions. So we will delve into that and ask some questions about what is neoliberalism, how to critique it, what are the implications of neoliberalism, is neoliberalism still the big monster that uh, everybody says it is, blah, 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 things like that. Spoiler, (laughs) yes. How do you feel, by the way, how do you feel about calling these types of interlocutions conversations. I always I, kind of throw up in my mouth a little bit when someone calls, let's, let's have a conversation. Is it too emerging church for you? Yeah, I do. I, I didn't think about that, but it definitely goes back to <laughs> my displeasure at those things. It's, it's basically, it's incredibly euphemistic, right? It's like, we're going to do, we're going to perform the same activity that is generally called like a discussion or an argument or whatever, and we're just going to call it a conversation because of the uh, negative externalities associated with those previous names, right? Like, that's that's basically what it is. Yeah, because, like, debate seems stale and formal, and then some people don't like the idea of debate because it seems to, to imply certain power relations that people have. And it's zero-sum game also, yeah. Yeah, and then and then I also think that the term conversation has a bad taste in our mouth just because it seems to be politically benign because everyone is like, well, let's just have a conversation about race and let's just have a conversation about <laughs> wage inequality. It's like, well, how about no? We fucking do something about it. And that's what this type of um, interlocution is. It's doing something. It's not just ethereal and detached from some sort of material reality. It's actually doing shit. Yeah, this is a discussion, is what it is, more than anything. It's a transformation of signification. Boom! Well, yeah, if you want to go on that shit. Um, have you ever okay. seen the the Charles Barkley commercial about race and having a conversation? No. Is it a recent yeah, one? Dude, it's amazing. Um, it, this is from like five or six years ago. I don't remember. No, it must have been during the Michael Brown thing. I think that was it. Okay. And uh, Charles Barkley did a commercial. I think it was during the NBA playoffs, if I'm remembering cor- correctly basically doing like a let's stop all the hatred and violence and and yelling and let's just have a conversation and it's charles barkley's face looking just incredibly ridiculous which is what he always is being a ridiculous oh. person um if, yeah. I've, I've seen people shit on it on twitter but i haven't seen it 
I think it's a meme too. Yeah. Kind of pointing out the, uh, the uselessness of this term conversation. Yeah. Yeah. That's what comes to my mind whenever I hear that term. Yeah. Well, whatever the fuck we're doing, that's what we're doing. Um, (laughs) do we have any new reviews or anything like that to report? No, but I will say that uh, if you give us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, as we've done before, we will read your review on the air and answer any question or questions as long as they are shorts and we can sort of address them quickly in a minute or two on the podcast. So feel free to do that on iTunes and we will read your name and review on the podcast and the next episode, hopefully. Sweet. You can also support us on Patreon patreon.com slash owls at dawn we have multiple tiers of support um, and you can get access to things like the monthly newsletter which we just released um, a few weeks ago for march and we'll be doing another one for april coming soon uh, as well as bonus episodes which we'll be doing off and on um, usually one every couple of weeks or so on uh, whatever topic we're interested in that doesn't fit quite neatly, neatly into a main topic for an episode um and what else do we get access to? Oh, yeah, the democracy. We got to do another one of those, dude. Oh, yeah, we got to do a poll soon. Uh, we'll do it this week. We'll set up a poll uh, or we'll, we'll start fielding suggestions, I mean, this week for topics that we will cover in a main segment episode in the future. So if you want access to that, go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn and it's the, the bottom tier for two bucks a month. You can get access to that. Right. So you know what we got to do before we get into our main topic, dude? Oh, I know. It's the shitty minute. Oh, I'm ready. The shitty minute is where one of us rants and raves about whatever it is that's grinding our gears this week. So, Austin, let's got you down. Uh, I just have a very simple thing to say. I don't engage too much at the level of popular political discourse on Twitter or online spheres as much as I try to unpack things and challenge thought to go a little bit deeper and not just simply reproduce the kind of banal talking points that get repeated across every platform and every person who thinks they're a woke Twitter person and whatever, blah, 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 blah. Anyway. Yeah, it's very annoying, dude. You should just yell more. Uh, I'm gonna, right now. Are you ready? <laughs> Here's my take. I'm gonna throw my hat into the ring of the 2020 Democratic primary. This is all I'm gonna say. This is my final word on the subject. I might tweet variations of this moving forward, but this is it. Are you ready? If you categorize yourself... As a socialist, you vote for Bernie. That's it. There's no qualifications save one. If for some reason you think he's going to die in office and you just (laughs) think that that's stupid, or if you just cannot vote for a man, or you cannot vote for a Jewish dude for whatever fucking biased reason, even though these are horrible reasons, then you vote for Elizabeth Warren. Now, that's it. I don't want to hear any justifications. I don't want to see butt edge edge end up in my feed. I don't want to hear yang gang shit anymore. If you start talking about UBI shit, I will throw you away because it's UBI while slashing the welfare state. So fuck the yang gang. Uh, If Zuckerberg and Elon Musk are all in his ass crack, then that means that I don't want to be. Okay? Simple. You vote for Bernie. If you're a progressive... You vote for Bernie because he's not some sort of weird-ass socialist. He's a social democrat. He's a new dealer. Yeah, he may have some underlying thoughts that he can't really articulate in public about maybe like larger hopes for democratic socialism or whatever. But still, he's a social democrat. So if you're a socialist, the best thing we got 
is Bernie. If you're a social Democrat progressive, the best thing we got is Bernie. Now, I know that Elizabeth Warren is really good with like articulating definitive progressive policies in a way that can be digestible in the main public. That's great. Elizabeth Warren is a kind of social Democrat progressive type, but still, I, I wouldn't hate on you if you vote for her, but still, you vote for Bernie. It's that fucking simple, guys. That's all I got to say. I'm done. Okay, so let me make the the argument to the contrary. Now, the the typical Twitter argument to the contrary is something about how concerns for identity and representation in the presidency are most paramount. Cool. Uh, Kamala Harris, cop. Cory Booker, Cory Booker, APAC. Next. Yeah. What's up? We've talked a lot in the podcast (laughs) about how when you take identity concerns and you divide or divorce them from issues of political economy then they become not only totally innocuous and um but also they can become actually kind of dangerous right because they end up getting weaponized against issues of policy um but of course identity intermixed with and coincident with issues of political economy is absolutely important um we've talked about the plenty don't need to rehash all that stuff so that's i think you can't really make a really good argument for kamala harris or cory booker or Buttigieg or whatever his name is, or any of those people based upon just identity alone. I do think there's maybe a respectable argument to be made for Elizabeth Warren, um, more than than you just admitted right there. And that would be something along the lines of, what is the utility of the presidency? For a lot of people, it's the identity thing, which I think we've already dismissed is not a really good reason. Outside of that, the president has a huge influence on foreign policy, obviously, right? Mm-hmm. Um, not so much on domestic policy. There's not much you can do through executive orders that coincides with Bernie's specifically preferred policies, right? Things like Medicare for All and whatnot aren't things you can do through executive orders. So you would need someone who actually is good on policy and good on, I guess, working through the machinations of governance. And it seems like to me, you could make an argument that Elizabeth Warren is actually really, really good at that stuff. And even though she doesn't share some of the ideological um, sort of preferences that Bernie does, right? She's out and out said that she's a capitalist. And what she means by that actually isn't that different from what Bernie means by being a socialist, strangely enough. They kind mm. of mean some form of like regulated, heavily regulated capitalism with a strong welfare state. It's not that different. Yeah. Um, but that said, since they're not actually that different, Warren's knowledge of policy and ability to craft really convincing um, ways of going about changing political economy in the country, right? Like changing the power of labor by promoting things like, um, you know, labor having 40% of whatever control of corporate boards, right? Um, that kind of stuff maybe is a better way for the president to work than for Bernie, who might just win the presidency and basically just use the bully pulpit and say, yeah, my- I, I, have a, I have a mandate from being elected, so you better pass all this stuff. And then Democrats just saying no. So here's here's what I actually think would be a perfect one-two punch is you get Elizabeth Warren to stay where she is and you have him in his bully pulpit. So you have him that is going to be that cranky, stubborn, social democrat 
at the top of the pyramid, and then underneath you have a legitimate, functional uh, policy group that is in Congress that is able to construct genuine progressive policies and gather support and articulate in a way that is transferable to uh, a populace these ideas that I don't think Bernie is as good at. He's not nearly as adept as, as Warren is at communicating those ideas. But what he is great at is he's good at sloganeering with those things, right? So I think that it would be great to have her remain where she is in Congress and then build up a really sort of formidable progressive base in Congress with her sort of at the pinnacle of Congress because I think that we would actually lose out on her skills as a policy writer if she was president. So that's kind of my more serious take on it. Yeah, I think you know what I, I mean. I think I agree with you, and really, to me, it comes down to the fact that whatever soundness the argument for Warren has, it really just comes down to the fact that the president's not going to be able to do very much on these right. issues that we care about. On foreign policy, absolutely, it's important to have a progressive president. Um, but on issues of domestic policy, it's really going to be like the labor movement that matters. We saw this um, in the last couple of months, right? The threats of strikes is what wins and strikes themselves, the actual action of striking. That's what can actually move um, things towards change. And it could be that Bernie winning and then whatever sort of stalemate that you know follows from that with Congress not being willing to actually follow through on his supposed mandate or fulfilling his mandate after winning might mean that that's it's like this, this kind of spark that gets the labor movement going. Right? People get angry and say, hey, we voted this guy in because we want Medicare for all and we're not going to get it because Democrats are bought by insurance companies right, and corporate overlords. Mm. And I mean, that's like a really, I'm not very confident that that would actually work necessarily. Probably very like a 5% chance that actually happens, right? Um, mm. But given our you know, political system, is there any, anything really better than that on option? Mm. Yeah. No, no, I, I agree. I mean, I even have more pessimistic takes on this, to be honest. I think... Um, that I'll share in the future as my ideas are a little more developed because they're somewhat controversial for my fellow Marxists out there. But um, I, I'm becoming rapidly disillusioned with the capacity of labor itself, not in the sense that we should give up on labor. I, I think that we should always stand on the side of uh, wage equality, and that that has to take place at, um, at, at alongside a sort of bottom-up approach following the lead of workers and unions. Um, so I'm embedded right now in a particular project here that is actively trying to do this, that is working alongside unions and trying to uh, develop infrastructural plans moving forward for a potential labor takeover uh, in the election in a couple of weeks here in Australia, um, hopefully. But but nevertheless, my, my larger concerns is that I, I think that we need to kind of focus our energies also elsewhere, that that might mitigate certain encroachments from capital into the larger uh, socio, or let's say it might mitigate the continuing encroachment of capital into the uh, socioeconomic landscape. But I still think that there are other choke points that need to be explored. And so I'm not even sure that that just simply siding with labor is actually as effective as a lot of like leftists like to think when there is success that emerges from a strike. That doesn't mean that we don't continue to support that 100%, but I think that's a necessary, not sufficient condition, you know? Yeah, I agree. So. The, the point is just that if Bernie wins and nothing else happens, he's basically going to be Jimmy Carter. You think? And that could actually set back, you know, the like the pursuit of social democracy over the long term. Um, and obviously, okay. Jimmy Carter failed in large part because of the um, the drop in oil prices and 
uh, stagflation and all that, things that were yeah. largely outside of his control. But that said, who's to we're say teetering, something similar We're teetering on the edge of a recession right now, so fuck. Yeah, I mean, how, I mean, how <laughs> awful would it be? How awful would it be if fucking Bernie wins, uh, Elizabeth Warren, you know, retains some sort of power, maybe gains even more power in Congress, um, and then at the at the level of vice president, you have somebody that is more um, inclusive of more identity concerns, which I think is what they would do strategy-wise. It makes sense, right? Even though that's kind of a token position, we've seen from previous presidencies that you can actually have some power at the, within the uh, vice presidency. So you could have you could have a, a nice one-two punch with Bernie and uh, somebody that's more kind of representative of identity issues. As vice president, you keep Warren where she is. You continue to build the base with these like justice Democrats in the House and then maybe move some of them up into the Senate. That would be great. And then the fucking floor drops out from underneath us and we have the worst recession since the Great Depression, which is what forecasters are predicting. Could you imagine how disappointing that would be? It would be so fucking awful. It could be, right? But it also could be the opportunity for the next FDR, right? Because, I mean... Hoover could have, or FDR, if he had been president in 1929, could have done New Deal type stuff in 29 and then kind of resisted a lot of the worst troughs of the Depression. So it could be an opportunity to, you know, do what Obama and company didn't do in 2008, right? And rescue um, homeowners rather than banks. So it could be horrible in that it could be like capital flight and it could be capital strike and all the kind of stuff that, that would go along with that and just massive recession and then Bernie bears all the blame for it. But it could also be an opportunity to have massive change. I mean, it could be anything. Yeah, it could be. It could be that. And then at the level of simple material comforts, you know, I, I, I have that quote from G.A. Cohen when we went over the G.A. Cohen text that resonates in my mind. I don't remember exactly what it is, but the paraphrase is how, like, I will never oppose any sort of policy that uh, increases material benefits right, or increases material comforts. Um, so yeah, absolutely, that is potential. But then at the same time, there are a lot of theorists, actually one of the guys that we're going to talk about in the podcast today, who talk about the seeds of neoliberalism that lie in the increased capacities for financialization under FDR and the New Deal. So that actually we're bearing the fruits, if you will, uh, that were laid in the progressive era that culminated in the New Deal policies. And so there is a sense in which we need to be aware of the potential pitfalls if we're going to make certain concessions that we're going to have to make after some sort of collapse, even if we are taking care of homeowners and uh, care workers and the people who are going to suffer most in, in, uh, from some sort of economic recession. You know? So, I don't know. Yeah, I'm yeah. just being a pessimist, basically. No, we're not plenty of time for pessimism. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. But still, vote for Bernie or vote for Warren, but if you dare call yourself a socialist and you vote for someone who literally talks about how he tweets with the leader of APAC like daily, like they're schoolgirls or something like that, then I just am going to throw my pen up in the air because I don't have anything else to say. That's Cory Booker, by the yeah. way. Yeah, just very simply, you have a Kantian duty to vote for who you think would be the best president. Just do that. Is that is that it? Just forget about all your eleven dimension dimensional chests, chests, excuse me, <laughs> and just vote for who you think should be president. Because all that bullshit is going to be wrong anyway. And if you're right about it, you were actually accidentally right. You weren't justified in whatever 
crazy imaginations you came up with. So just vote for who you think would be best president. Okay, because we're not going to talk about this too much on the podcast, real quick, do you have predictions right now? I know it's a long way away still and scandals will come out and pictures of Biden, you know, scratching women's head will come out or whatever's going to happen. Um, what do you think are going to give – me, give me your three candidates that are going to be in the kind of runoff for the Democratic nomination. Oh, man, dude. I mean, like, at this point, before the 2016 election in 2015, it was like Jeb Bush was the shoe-in, right? <laughs> <laughs> so who the fuck knows? Um, I don't know, who, who do you but, think? Like, looking at the world, like, what do you think? What, what's going on? What's your prediction? Here's the thing. You're asking me to do the 11-dimensional chess, which I just said is always bullshit. Well, yeah, I I'm, could I'm do not it, saying to make but, your vote based on that. I'm just saying speculatively. Yeah, I mean, I think that... I guess at this point, it's going to be Biden and Bernie uh, running off with one calling the other a socialist and one calling the other a pervert, but without using those terms, um, and a centrist and beholden to corporations and everything else that's true about Biden. Um, and there'll be a fight between the establishment Democrats and the progressive and justice Democrats. And I don't know who will win in that. I think Bernie has more appeal. I think Biden will lose some support as he puts his foot in his mouth and says stuff like millennials are dumb and um, it comes out and most people know that he is responsible for every piece of bad legislation Democrats have passed in the past 30 years, mm. um, especially when it comes to things like student loans. I can't imagine a single millennial knowingly voting for Biden uh, given his the role he played in um, student loans being unable to be included in, uh, unable to def be defaulted on. So, yeah, I guess that's the best I can do. But mm. I, that's all said. Things, it's chaos theory, right? Initial conditions cha change one little bit, and it's massive, massive changes at the political level. So I have no idea what it'll be like when President Buttigieg uh, <laughs> declares gay martial law or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, John Podesta was actually here a couple of weeks back. It was before Beto O'Rourke announced his uh, candidacy for the nomination. And he said that he thinks that from what he hears from insiders in Washington that they're going to support Beto. So there could be some interesting power machinations behind the empty vessel that is Beto O'Rourke as well. I guess. It just seemed maybe this is just from like the, the Twitter um like inner circle or whatever. Um, but Which only 14% like or something like that of the population are on Twitter. Yeah, but it seems like everyone just realizes this guy is just a charisma bot. And he's not even that charismatic. Like, he's nothing compared to Obama. I think it's selection charisma. bias, bro. I think it's because... It he, might be. Yeah. I don't know. I, I just don't know. How does he appeal to, like, the average person that catches a glimpse of him on Fox News or on CNN or MSNBC or that he watches him in a town hall? Like, do they get convinced by the smooth-talking, you know, table stander? It's just that, you know, a lot of moderate Republicans or moderate conservatives voted for Obama in 08, and he won a landslide victory in large part because of the financial crisis and the Iraq war and everything else that was going against Republicans at the time, right? And they don't have that, right? Republicans are overwhelmingly in support of the current president. So 
I just don't think that you can just have someone who stands up there and says things like hope and change without any actual policy prescriptions. Yeah. Anybody believes it. And with the collapse that, of the Russiagate investigation, it seems like that's going to basically just put more power into um, into the Republican Party and away from centrism, which is another reason why I actually think strategically Bernie is the candidate on the, the Democratic side or on the left that is sort of more potent because he wasn't caught up in all of the Russiagate shit. So you can't really indict him as being someone who was uh, involved in the quote-unquote witch hunt, which you know Trump is going to use in every fucking speech that he gets an opportunity to basically discredit any candidate. But he can't do that with Bernie. Yeah, Trump benefited from critiquing the Republican establishment, even though he's basically been in line with it in terms of policy. He critiqued it in the run-up to the election, and that was a huge part of why he just completely bypassed Bush and Cruz and everybody else, right? He criticized them. He said they want to cut Medicare. I won't. He said they supported Iraq. I didn't, even though he did. Mm-hmm. Um, he used his outsider status to right. distance himself from the establishment, and that ended up being a big part of why Republicans flocked to him because they were dissatisfied with the Republican establishment. Bernie could do a similar thing with Democrats by critiquing them from the outside during the debates um, in a way that obviously Beto and Biden and others can't really do they because can't. they're either yeah. they have been the establishment for 30 years or they are clearly backed by it and all their policy preferences are in line with it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah I think so. So I don't know, man. It'll be interesting. All I know is I watched the interview with Andrew Yang last night and uh, Yang Gang. I, I I am terrified of the Twitter Yang Gang now. So Yang Bucks, man. I want my Yang Bucks. <laughs> Are you telling me you wouldn't? I mean, if we're talking about material comforts and we think there's only a five percent chance Bernie's actually going to win and do anything good. Why not just get your thirteen hundred dollar a month Yang Bucks? And like, just party hard for a couple of years until it all blows up. <laughs> Why take, not? I'll take my thousand bucks a month and I will, I swear to God, I'm telling you right now, I will move to the mountains because I can live on a thousand bucks a month <laughs> and the patron support from this podcast, I will live off of that in the mountains, produce content, read poetry, hill walk and <laughs> chop wood and just grow out a gnarly beard and get fucking ripped and then just fish. That's it, man. I will do that. As the world gets taken over by our neo-feudal lords. Yeah, I honestly can't make a really sustained argument against that viewpoint other than just to say (laughs) something about constitutionally I can't do it. And if you accept that, then you can't really practically do anything else in your life because it's just it's just too like mechanical a viewpoint. But it's not wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I feel like we're I'm at a juncture. I feel like the juncture is I'm either gonna go full on anarcho-primitivist or I'm going to go like full-on techno-utopian and then I'm just going to try to like find a way through like accelerationist techno-utopian on the other side through this sort of dystopian techno world that we're moving into. I don't know which juncture or I'm sorry, I don't know which path to take but I'm there right now. That's how I feel. I don't know, man. Anarcho-primitivism or techno-utopianism I'm going to say both are worse. I, I, I'm, I'm at the fork, brother. <laughs> like Robert Frost is in my head right now. There's, which is the road less traveled by? I don't know. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about some political economy and political theology, yeah? Okay, that sounds good. All right, so this uh, discussion, conversation, debate, whatever you want to call it, was sponsored by Stanford 
University Press. And um, it's between, as you said earlier in the beginning of the episode, Adam Kotzko, a political theologian, and uh, Martin Koenig. Did I pronounce that correctly? Martin Konings. Martin Konings, um, who is a political economist over in your neck of the woods. Yes. I like that they called this between political economy and political theology, because that really seems to be the macroscopic topic um, that Kotzko and Koenigs are discussing, right? Something about how we have a, a, the same content being addressed from different theoretical perspectives, and those theoretical perspectives or lenses give a different color to mm. that same content. That same content being neoliberalism, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I like that they basically in this in these two parts for this um, discussion talk about how their theoretical identifications bring out these different colors in the content of neoliberalism, because then the debate or discussion comes becomes about which of those is preferable, or not necessarily which is preferable, but um, what does each leave out that the other can then make up for, and how do we sort of reconcile those differences? Are they just differences in theoretical orientation, or they tell us something about neoliberalism as it is in itself? Mm. Yeah, I mean, because there are obviously disciplinary restrictions that if you are raised within a, a particular disciplinary orientation, uh, I don't mean raised like from childhood, but if you are uh, cultivated in your formative intellectual years from within a particular disciplinary framework, you're going to interpret the world in a particular way. You're going to ask particular things because you have a toolbox that is going to frame both limit but also allow your analysis of whatever the the subject matter is in particular. So what I want to ask you, Troy, is what do you think the toolbox is that separates political economy from political theology, particularly, you know, from these from these uh, representatives of those disciplines, but also more broadly? Yeah, it seems to me that you know political economy, excuse me, political theology is oftentimes couched as basically like doing a like a Carl Schmitt type analysis. And I think Kotzko does a good job at least mentioning here that that's just one flavor of doing political theology. And really, the through line between Schmidt and other forms of political theology get to the idea of legitimation. That's the mm. sense in which a political theology is a political theology. It's how do you legitimize or give a legitimation to some political entity? Um, mm. And that seems to be the main focus of political theology. And therefore, it's, it's not going to deal so much with, um, I don't know, purely economic concerns, um, purely the more like, you know, mathematical um, side of, of economics, but instead with more like conceptual analysis and genealogical critique. Well, it seems that it's going like to be that. focused more on uh, like concerns of power as well. Yeah, and Whereas, not reducible purely to economic concerns. Yeah, would be the key. exactly. Yeah, so let me have, I have a quote here from Kotzko that I think helps bring out some of this stuff. He says, okay. what's so puzzling in our moment, I think, is that the remaining classic neoliberals, that is moderate Democrats, Blairites, etc., no longer have any real popular purchase. And the right-wing reaction legitimates itself misleadingly, as usual, 
by distancing itself from the neoliberal policies and mostly continues to pursue. So he's dealing here again with legitimation, right? And the idea Costco is saying is that neoliberalism doesn't have an intrinsic legitimation anymore, right? Which that's different than say like, you can speak more to this, but like the Hayekian concern, right? The Hayekian concern is that you can rationally legitimize neoliberalism. It's the most preferable option for a political economy based purely on rational concerns, right? What's best for the nation in contrast to something like, you know, top-down socialism, reason, social democracy. Um, that's not the case anymore. You, no one really accepts that other than, you know, a fringe of people who are still like have Hayekian intuitions or whatever. But the sort of right-wing reaction to that is still in line with neoliberalism. It still pursues the same policies, but it legitimates itself differently by distancing itself from that and focusing on things like identity and nationalism um, and stuff like that. And that's the sort of the new thing that's happened over the last, what, 10, 15 years. Okay, so this is going into the secret vault here, but I have an email exchange between myself and Martine Konings that might bear on this. Oh, well, this is unfair. I know. So hold on. But you're going you're gonna to like this. Uh, okay. We were talking about this pre- precise issue, and fuck, I don't remember what my law... Lo- I was looking at my long email, and it's too much to explain right now, but I was thinking through... I had recently read uh, Habermas's Legitimation Crisis, and um, I was thinking about, you know, this problem of social value and social concerns and concerns of power in relation to legitimacy. And this is what Martin's response was. And this will give some insight maybe into the political economic frame that is maybe different from Kotzko's. He says, you might even consider that modern critical theory has gone really wrong in thinking that legitimacy and value are actually different things so that they constantly have to make these contrived distinctions between social values and economic value. Okay, so in what sense would you then collapse those or identify those? Well, I think, uh, so Kotzko asks Konings why he doesn't consider issues of race, gender, uh, things like that in his book as much as, you know, they serve a sort of central frame for Kotzko. And it's because Kotzko is eminently concerned with the notion of legitimacy in terms of how it is that neoliberalism as a governmental regime reinforces itself, that there's a self-referentiality that is endemic to it um, based on certain kind of um, tools, let's say, of legitimacy or legitimation, right? Whereas I think Koning's concern is to look at the like technological machinations of value production per se as being inherently tools of legitimacy themselves and that other issues like identity and race uh, need to be enfolded into, not as qualitatively distinct from, but enfolded into the process of sort of value legitimacy as being a source of social legitimacy. So that there's a sort of, there's a collapse, there's an immanentization, if you will. I actually see Koning's project in very similar terms to what Dan Barber is doing um, with this relation of imminent causality. And this is because Konings comes uh, from like the systems theoretical approach. He calls himself a radical constructivist. And his point is that there is no external position from which we can ever critique something. It's systems within systems within systems within systems, and there is no external point of reference, right? There are these self 
reinforcing and accumulating systems. And he derives this from a particular reading of Nicholas Luhmann, or Luhmann, um, who's a systems theorist, right around the time that actually uh, Habermas is writing Legitimation Crisis in the, like, the middle to the latter part of last century. So I don't know if that gives insight into how they might view these things differently, but instead of viewing them as maybe like separate discrete units, there's this co-constitutive and imminent causal relation that would, I think, characterize Koning's perspective in particular that isn't quite just the pure reductive economism that you would get of like a uh, – like a – uh, the, the the obstetric model, for example, of Marxism that G.A. Cohen criticizes where everything is just reducible to um, economic social relations and that there's this like clearly defined base and superstructure relation and the superstructure is sort of like a, a phantom or an effect, an epiphenomenon of those base realities. Without doing that, um, I think that's kind of – does that give an insight maybe into maybe how we can make this distinction between them? Yeah, I think so. And okay. I, I definitely see the connection with like a a more flattened um, imminent approach here coming from Koenig that you're kind of connecting to Barber and Deleuze and others. But I think, and Costco says this phrase that he finds this brilliant when it comes to questions of risk and state entanglement in markets, but he says it's bloodless. Mm. And by blood, bloodless, I think he means with that type of theoretical approach, it doesn't look like anything really different or, or any big change has happened since in the last, since the financial crash, basically, right? And Costco's kind of basically just appealing to intuition and saying, look, if you don't think something's changed in the world and the way people think about political economy and the sort of stranglehold that neoliberalism has on the world's biggest governments, if you don't think that's changed somehow, at least the sort of background, the legitimation of that, then you're just ignoring the facts. Then your theoretical approach doesn't actually work. It's, it has huge blind spots because uh, something has changed. Um, it hasn't necessarily changed at the level of economic analysis, but it absolutely has changed with the background concerns, the background political concerns behind that. And we're not going to be able to actually analyze not only reality but approaches to reforming reality if we take that kind of approach hmm. can you flesh out what you think some of those changes are uh, uh in particular yeah so is it, is it um, like the emergent like so there's a guy named alfredo sad who talks about the rise of what he calls authoritarian neoliberalism and so uh he looks at like you know the the, the Brexit vote, and he looks at the rise of Trump and Golden Dawn in Greece and what is it, Five Star in Italy and whatever these other uh, groups are that are emerging. And then in the Netherlands and in Denmark, they're having a sort of like quote-unquote immigrant crisis where they're trying to lock down on a sort of like ethno-national uh, preservation. He calls it the rise of uh, authoritarian neoliberalism. Is that kind of what you mean? Yeah, I mean, in large part, um, that's pretty much it, right? I mean, uh you know, Costco says that he thinks that it's it's been it's been there since since Hayek, right? The kind of cultural and social conservatism was always married to this kind of libertarian and eventually neoliberal um, kind of consensus and mm. economics. Um, so it's always been a way of trying to justify why some people are successful and some people are not, right? It ultimately comes down to well, do they work harder or are they lazy pieces of shit? Um, because they under neoliberalism, you must freely choose whatever your outcomes are, and the whole thing is a big justification for 
whatever the outcomes are, um, being of one's free choice and therefore being, you know, things you're morally responsible for. And that being the whole justificatory backdrop, the change now is just that no one necessarily buys um, that specific setup as far as how it addresses like the global scene, right? Um, people are kind of starting to realize that, no, I mean, you kind of have to take sides and it's a zero-sum game and people are going to win and some people are going to lose. So we kind of have to just grab onto the reins of power and make sure that we can win, right? Mm. Um, but it still comes back to blaming subaltern people for the effects of whatever, or the outcomes of whatever the economic scene is. It just happens through a a different form of legitimation, it seems like. I'm not sure if I'm, if I'm running this super well. Um, but I, I do think that there's something just to the basic idea that things have changed a little bit in the last 15 years. And if you look at it from purely uh, economic analysis, you might not see that. And maybe that says something about the analysis. Mm. Interesting. What do you think Konings would say to that? Because that's, that's a very broad, not very specific um, critical notion that I'm voicing here. Yeah, I mean, obviously I'm speaking on behalf of somebody else, but um, I, I think that the response would be something along the lines of that we need to really reframe how it is that we understand neoliberalism. And I actually think that fundamentally Konings understands neoliberalism quite differently from Kotzko. Um, and it starts off this way. And I think you can kind of see that they don't really continue to address it because the con conversation, the debate, I can't say conversation anymore. <laughs> um, uh, the, the discussion moves into different terrain, but I think it fundamentally there's a divergence here. And I think this has implications that bear on this. And the divergence is this, is uh, neoliberalism, the standard international political economic reading of neoliberalism is that what you get in the 70s uh, and into the 80s in particular, and its pinnacle in the 90s, is the um, deregulation of the markets. The sort of unfettering market becomes the dominant uh, regime or mode of governmentality. And Konings actually doesn't agree with that. Uh, that other reading, that typical international political economy reading, is based on um, this idea that there was a sort of reclamation of the... Uh, British liberalism of the late 19th century and that somehow it was mitigated through the progressive era and then it was simmering under the surface but through the machinations of you know the Mont Pelerin society and uh, there were these uh, strategies that were constructed and think tanks were established and positions were set up in schools like the University of Chicago and uh, you know these these neoliberal theorists they got into uh, advisory roles and they were just waiting for their moment to strike while the iron was hot cue the OPEC crisis, this is the perfect opportunity for us, stagflation, hey, the Keynesian order is gone, now let's join in and let's reinstitute this sort of uh, other era of, or this other uh, logic of governmentality, uh, this, and then you get neoliberalism that becomes the dominant mode, you know, in Thatcherism and Reaganite, and then of course third way Blairite politics and shit like that, right? Um, Konings actually doesn't think that's the case. He thinks there's something unique about the development of American finance that emerges as separate from British finance um, that develops throughout the 18th, 1800s and then into the early 1900s and that when you get the progressive era that what you actually get are these seeds of neoliberalism that are being 
laid there that are radically different in profound ways from the British liberalism that supposedly has been kind of repeated or reproduced in the neoliberal era. And I think that the reason that this has bearing on this issue is uh, how do how do how do I say it without making it seem like it's too reductive? Because I'm afraid that I'm just I'm I'm veering into like an economization uh, of his idea, which he he wouldn't say, because um, there is a scaling up and how systems kind of reinforce one another, and so systems of identity um, do kind of have a co-constitutive relation with systems of value production. But it's precisely this idea of scaling up or of um, a complexification, a complication of um, these various technological logics or these logistical operations that are occurring at the level of finance, that are occurring at the level of politics, that is related to how it is that, for example, the central bank is constructed as basically being a supposedly independent bank, but that's really got a board of private bankers that themselves um, are influencing policy that will then benefit the private banks, so that's why interest rates are adjusted the way they are. Yeah, there's an element of price control and inflation control, but really it's about credit creation. And so it's those elements that relate to politics and then how it is then that we understand identity and uh, like gender concerns and race concerns are all built into that larger system as these co-constitutive elements of both polity and of socioeconomic management. And so I don't think that they're kind of uh, and, and then so there's this through line. There's more of a continuity that that Konings, I think, sees that goes from that, let's say, the establishment of the Fed uh, into the, neo, the, uh, the New Deal era um, that isn't really abandoned. It's not really like you get this, uh, this radical shift in the Keynesian progressive era away from that consistent development of American finance and then the relations that are kind of – uh, centered around that, which then culminates in the neoliberal era in a particular way, but there isn't a discontinuity. Whereas Kotzko sees it as a discontinuity because I think he buys that story that there's somehow a radical break from the Keynesian order and a return to late 19th century British liberalism. Does that make sense? Yeah, maybe. That's not really my area, but I think I see the the big picture thing you're pointing at with okay. the continuity between um, neoliberalism and Keynesianism, Keynesianism basically, right? Like there's a there's an underlying continuity there that Coinings is um, focusing on and Costco sees as a kind of break. But I don't yeah. know that he does see that as a as a as a big break, right? Because he's pointing out that the um the social conservatism of Hayek et al. is bound together with the economic conservatism. So I don't and he doesn't explicitly talk about Keynesianism here at least, but I don't find it plausible that he would think that there's a sort of like um, radical discontinuity between Keynes and uh, kind of the classical liberal approach to um, economics that, that justifies capitalism itself. I don't know. Mm. I don't have anything like a proof text aside for that, but I don't find that super plausible. Maybe there's more of a discontinuity than, than Konings would be happy with. But let me let me mm. say something that. I was thinking about while you were giving that explanation. Um, so I was listening to uh, Chris Hayes' podcast, um, Why Is This Happening, which is a really good podcast, actually, even though... The MSNBC, you know, Chris Hayes? Yeah. Um, oh. I, I, I can never watch his show because, you know, like all TV news, it's basically just the horse race um, on politics, mm -hmm. and I hate that. But his podcast oftentimes has really good guests, like Kwame Anthony Apaya was on mm -hmm. talking about identity recently, and that was really interesting. Um, but he had someone on, I don't remember who it was, I hadn't heard of him before, but they were talking about identity politics again. And they pointed out 
or the author pointed out that, you know, you can't just claim that Republicans in America generally vote against their own interests by aligning themselves with the Republican Party and with policies that go against their most immediate economic interests. Um, so things like, for instance, they cited as some story of a guy who was dying of like pulmonary disease or emphysema or something. And he was in Tennessee and he was at some like town hall debate or whatever, um, talking about or discussing whether or not to expand Medicaid back um, when the states were deciding that after Obamacare was passed. And Kentucky did, I believe, expand Medicaid, but Tennessee did not. And this guy was basically dying of uh, this pulmonary disease or whatever it was. And he was arguing that uh, his state, Tennessee, shouldn't be like Kentucky and expand Medicaid. Because even though it would help him, it would also help a bunch of freeloaders. Hmm. And he would doesn't want to do that. And you know, people look at that kind of a thing and would be like, well, that's just false consciousness, right? That's just pure irrationality. And you know, they were saying, well, it's not. This person has made a claim and they're very cognizant of the outcomes of that claim. They've decided that they would rather have these identitarian uh, outcomes be beneficial to them than pure like health outcomes or economic outcomes or whatever else. And maybe there's something in there about they don't really believe those things would actually happen or whatever. But generally speaking, the point is not to have this really stark divide between social values and economic values, right? People don't actually do that in real life. They just consider certain things to be valuable, whether they're social, economic, or intermixed, which they usually are, right? So I think that's true um, at the sort of macro viewpoint, right? That we shouldn't divorce these things and we should admit that you know, people don't have false consciousness. They just, they value certain things. And um, we should be, we should expect that and know that and not just kind of wave that stuff away. But that said, and I think you mentioned it at some point when you were, and your last point that you made, um, there's a, there's a relation between those social values and economic values. That's interesting. And it seems like when people are doing poorly economically, when they have the anxiety that comes from, not knowing if they're going to be able to afford to fix their car when it breaks or ever pay off their student loans or lose their home um, in the next housing crash or whatever it is, or the health outcomes. Can they pay for their hospital bill if they get hurt? All the effects of the economic anxieties that come from that do have some sort of causal role in yeah. changing your sort of social values. Um, it's not purely unidirectional and that's true it's not like the like the social values are epiphenomenal to the economic values which was kind of like that economic anxiety argument that was going around um after trump got elected right which is oh if you just kind of cure the economic anxieties then the epiphenomenal racism will go away that's not the case that's way too simplified of an explanation there's some relationship there i think it's a bi-directional one so that you can't just collapse them all into like one big imminent pool of values that people have. There's some sense in which, you know, I don't think Trump would have gotten elected if the financial crash hadn't happened. Right. I mean, that's, mm. I mean, how can you, you know, it's an impossible world somewhere. It's counterfactual, but um, I think that makes sense, even though it's also true that, you know, the neoliberalism that's at the heart, even more of the Republican party than the democratic party, although they're similar in that respect, 
is responsible for the financial crash, and the Republicans benefited um, from it. So it's not like this, you know, pure causal, like you hold responsibility for the things that you control um, type of a thing politically. But there's some relationship there, as vague as that might be at the surface level. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it totally makes sense. Um, I, I mean, this is where I think that a lot of political economic analysis really goes awry um, because it, it misses out on the discursive because the discursive is material, right? So people that want to commit themselves to a material analysis or a structuralist analysis are really doing themselves a disservice and they're actually sort of like restricting their own uh, potential for rigor by simply neglecting the materiality of uh, – ideas or the materiality of relations or the materiality of words and significations and things like that, that we tend to um, ascribe to the world of identity politics, that it's only concerned with like, you know, performativity theory and gender identity and stuff like that, these things that are like supposedly ethereal, but they're not. I mean, if you are a materialist, then everything is fucking material, which means that words and ideas and thoughts and relations are material. So the question is, in what way are they material? In what way do they relate to these other questions of value production that tend to consume the critique of political economy? And I think this is one important, maybe the important kind of um, conjuncture that needs to be explored within a framework of political philosophy, uh, which is kind of where I view myself as kind of standing in between the two, trying to, like I'm being torn apart. I'm, I'm picturing some movie thing where he's like, he's being torn apart, but he's trying to hold them together somehow, you know, like that kind of thing. <laughs> um, and it's really strange because when I'm in, when I'm in like philosophy circles, I find myself getting like really reductive and thinking about political economy. And then when I'm in like political economy circles, I'm like, guys, but you don't understand philosophy. You know, and I heard it actually great. I think I don't remember who it was. It may have been Elena Esposito. She's a sociologist. It, it was either her or, oh God, I can't remember. It was somebody else. But they basically were like, "Look, uh, the humanities loves to read social science, but the social sciences don't read the humanities." <laughs> and that's of course a generalization. But this is a woman who's in the social sciences trying to say, "Guys, we need to read more of the humanities." And her point is, is that there is a tendency towards reductionism that does exist within the sort of like political economic framework. And so we do need to think through how it is that these things that we call identities, for example, your religious identity, um, your ethnic identity, your gender identity, your uh, sexual identity, that how those things have a causal relation, both in terms of them being constituted in relation to value production, but then also in terms of the sort of like doubling back onto is how it is do they then affect the future and subsequent production of value itself. And I think those are things that oftentimes get missed when you just simply look at things in terms of like economic analysis. Yeah, you know, at the end of the Chris Hayes podcast I was referencing, what really struck me was they talked about the story of the guy from Tennessee and then basically Hayes just threw up his hands um, as, as much as you can do on a podcast and said, how do you possibly convince someone who's that bought into their social and identity concerns being more valuable to them than their own like life? itself and the conclusion basically although unspoken is you can't um, mm. nothing you can do so you kind of have to give up right and what i think that misses most because it's separating the social and identity identity concerns from the material concerns it's just putting a stark divide between them is that 
as you're saying, they're both material. Everything is material. Well, what does that mean? To go back to our discussion with the lit crit guy over what materialism is. Um, for me, the key factor is that it's contingency. And mm. the spectrum of contingency from most to least contingent is where the only divide exists between the material and the identitarian and social. So that material concerns are the kind of least contingent. Your health, your future prosperity is almost always going to be incredibly important to you, no matter what, right? The social and identity concerns are plastic. Mm. They can change not only in their intensity, but in their actual content itself. So you can literally change from caring a lot about the status of your national identity to actually thinking it doesn't matter at all, or it maybe is even a bad thing. Hmm. You can change your religious identity. Both of us know that very, very well, right? You can change your identity in terms of your ethical concerns, right? You can go from not giving a shit about anybody else to actually caring about people. It can literally happen, right? Um, and it doesn't mean that everyone at some point goes through massive conversions where they change everything they believe, but everyone does change over time on these issues. Um, and you don't normally change in terms of, or very much in terms of how much you care about your health, right? Um, so that spectrum of contingency there, I think is important to point out because that's the major difference, right? Um, at that moment, you're not going to go to the guy in Tennessee and convince him to support expansion of Medicaid, right? But think about the things that had to happen to formulate him into the person that he is that values um, the sort of uh, absence of helping brown people over his own personal livelihood, right? People aren't born that way. No one's born the way that they are, right? So um, things had to happen to form that person into the person that he is. So there isn't a like an immediate solution you can do to just automatically get all these kinds of people, him being an extreme case, of course, into your coalition of, you know, everything's material and so we're going to make everyone's lives better. But you can do that. It's just a long-term project and not just a pill that you take. And all of a sudden, you're a materialist and you lost all your false consciousness. Now all you care about is everyone forming around the generic secular and supporting democratic socialism or something like that. It's not about mm. making us Norway tomorrow, right? It's about trying to see where we currently are located, doing a diagnostic of where we're currently located in terms of all of our material concerns and seeing what the best uh, approach is long-term to fix that. Of course, that will never happen because nothing in our political scene ever cares about long-term consequences. And we're all going to die uh, in the next 25 years. So that puts a bit of a damper on that idea, I guess. So uh, Martin wrote a book called <laughs> The Development... Yeah, I know. <laughs> Changing tack. Um, Martin wrote a book called The Development of American Finance. And in it, he talks about how in the 1800s, there was some tension between uh, New York elite bankers and uh, agrarian farmers. And uh, one of the things that gets resolved in the progressive era is the sort of uh, after the election loss of like William Jennings Bryan, which is kind of like the end of populism and uh, the kind of greenback movement that existed at least up to that point, right? What ends up happening is that these populist concerns and these sort of more democratic concerns that didn't fit into the concerns of the New York elites get incorporated into the progressive era, 
right? So I think that there's like an analogous sense and thinking uh, like in terms of the continuity that I talked about earlier, that there's an analogous sense in which these like identity ideas, and this might be Koning's hesitance to engage as much at the level of the discursive and the rational, and, and remind me about that in a second, um, because he does want to engage with the affective and the libidinal, right? But I'll talk about that in a second. Um, but I think there's a concern that that these concerns, these identity concerns, that these gender concerns um, are kind of similar to those populist concerns and the democratic concerns that we saw at the end of the 1800s, the end of the 19th century, that got wrapped up into progressivism, and that part of the problem of progressive interpretations of uh, neoliberalism is that they sort of just only allow for the proliferation and the reproduction of the very same logic itself uh, that is exploitative because the concessions um, really only affect one side to a greater degree while still offering some measure of material comfort. You know, you can get wage raises or we'll give you some uh, measure of, you know, welfare protections or something like that. But nevertheless, the sort of accumulative aspects of value are still exponentially favorable to the elites that are constructing the very technological logic in which the uh, in which the the concessions themselves are framed, and so it's those conditions of concessions that I think concern him. Does that make sense? Yeah, is that not just what we were saying earlier about how um, identity politics divorced from political economy is just kind of empty? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. So then here's here's the next point. So then Martin in his last book uh, was called The Emotional Logic of Capitalism. And in it, what he's really concerned with is the affective investment of uh, conservatives and progressives into particularly money. Like how is it that money has served as what he calls an icon? This thing that has both a centripetal and centrifugal force. It it gathers people together in its attention, but there's also a sense in which there's an iconoclasm, and you realize that this icon isn't really a thing. Money isn't really a thing, um, but it kind of is a is a representation, or it opens you up to this constellation of meanings. But nevertheless, it has this affective pull over people. So I think he would want to look at identity politics and the identity concerns. For example, let's say race and gender. Uh, in the wake of the financial collapse and how it is that that libidinal and affective investment has morphed into these scaled-up concerns. Can you elaborate more on that last point? I think it's kind of like a combinatory thing, right? So let's say affect is um, this sort of micro-logical, and let's say identity is the combination of uh, and the solidification of those affective concerns. And what he'd want to do is unpack the macro, the identities, to understand the affective and the micro to see how it is that they constitute the identity. Not that he isn't then concerned with other people in the humanities, for example, and maybe someone like Kotzko who wants to then think, okay, well, what is it that – how can we understand the relationship of the macro upon the micro? But Martin's primary concern is how do we understand the scaling up of the affective in its constitution of those more macro concerns? And his argument ultimately is that progressives don't understand that because they don't understand affective and libidinal investment. And then I think he would want to translate that into how it is that we should understand neoliberalism and this emergence of authoritarian neoliberalism and ethno-nationalism and these other kind of concerns towards identity politics as being an effect of that. 
so they're, they're, I think the, the criticism from Kotzko's perspective, from the political theological perspective, would be that Martin's still being a little bit reductive, and then Martin is saying, yeah, but you're not paying enough attention, sufficient attention to the conditions under which these identity concerns themselves are formed. I think that's the point of tension between the two. Yeah, okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. I, I love the way you put it there, about the conditions under which they're formed, um, the identity and social concerns are formed. So this gets to an issue that, really a kind of fundamental issue, just in like philosophy in general, just like forming concepts in general. Um, it seems to me that there's sort of two major lenses, conceptual lenses we can view ourselves as human beings from at the like really, really fundamental foundational level. One is as machines and the other is as kind of subjects who think and act based upon their beliefs and desires, right? Um, like moral subjects in a sense. And I don't think you can really do without either of those. It's ultimately kind of a Kantian notion that we hold to you know natural necessity in the sciences and we believe everything has a sufficient cause and all effects are, don't exceed their causes and so on and so forth. And then on the other hand, we also believe that we're subjects who act based upon our beliefs and desires when we have some sort of free will and we're responsible for our actions and so on and so forth. And I know I'm really bought into the idea that you can't do without either of those, that mm. w each one on its own falls apart upon its own lack of um, like foundational, rational support. And so we kind of have to have a parallax between the two and switch mm. between them um, when they're necessary. And it does seem to me like mm. Costco and Koenigs here are kind of addressing neoliberalism and the formation of subjects within it from these two different perspectives, right? Koenigs is, is focusing on the sort of mechanical apparatus that underlies how subjects are constituted in neoliberalism, including not only the economic you know, macro side, but the um, you know, subjective side of um, the libidinal economy. Mm -hmm. Whereas Costco is looking at the sort of moral and normative aspects um, mm. of ourselves from under neoliberalism. And that's why he's focusing so much on the idea of the cult of blame, as he calls it, which I really like. And the idea there is this is like a, a really twisted kind of morality. It's taking our, our moral selves and twisting them and bastardizing them to the greatest degree possible to the point where everything in politics is basically just based on escaping blame for myself and placing blame on those I don't like, on those who are in some sense uh, distasteful to me. And mm. he kind of analyzes it through that sphere, right? And I don't know that there's necessarily an answer to the question of which is preferable because it seems like each one analyzed purely individually and on its own is going to by its own lights, miss certain key elements that would be necessary to an analysis of um, political economy, or in this case, neoliberalism. And so, I don't know, maybe it's a cop-out, but it seems to me like it's not saying both are right, but in a sense, we have to do both types of analysis. Do Otherwise, think, we're going to miss something. Do you, do you think that we need to just be super sensitive? There's a pragmatism here, sensitive to the current contextual moment, that at the moment... Maybe maybe ten years ago, uh, we wouldn't be as concerned with uh, the elements that Kotzko is trying to bring up. You know, this idea of the uh, what is it, the cult of blame. Um, but that because it is a real political 
reality, we therefore have to adjust ourselves to the landscape and be sensitive to that, to incorporate that into our theoretical frameworks if we're going to be rigorous in our analysis. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense because there's there's sort of like, it's kind of volcanic, right? There are sort of eruptions uh, of each and the other. And probably times where the pure economic analysis and the focus on the libidinal really makes sense of why people do what they do and the you know social macroscopic um, effects of all the individual participants in the economy. And then there are times where the volcanic upsurge happens and these you know discursive social and moral concerns bubble up and create some kind of crisis. And there's, I guess you have to kind of proportionally focus on those concerns when they bubble up like that. And maybe Costco's um, criticism of Koenig's analysis being bloodless is just that. Mm. Like this is the time of all times where we need to focus on that issue um, and do this other kind of analysis as well. Because without it, you can't really get from the idea that people are machines, um, why this kind of relatively new, um, hard right, nationalistic uh, brand of neoliberalism is taking hold. Mm. And then here's where I think it's crucial to not skimp out on Koning's side because, okay, so great. So let's say we win these progressive uh, identity causes and you get incorporation and representation uh, and equality for all, but it's at the expense of the radical reproduction of the very technological logics that are going to just simply enclose more value for the elites because they don't really care. You can have your identity so long as you're feeding us data that we can quantify and turn into trillions and trillions of dollars as we build out our platforms where you live out your free and equal identity lives. Right? And that's the future that I get concerned with is that is that if we focus too much, and this obviously isn't, I don't think Kotzko would say we focus too much on this. I think Kotzko's trying to strike a balance. I think Koenig's is as well, even if they're skewed to one side rather than the other. But my concern is, is okay, if we concern ourselves with these identity causes so much, politically speaking, even if they do win representation or incorporation into the larger framework, it's that framework itself that needs to be contested and that I'm not sure is essentially contested in the identity concerns themselves. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that Costco certainly is not claiming that, right? He's he's no, no, no. making yeah. the claim that they're really tightly intertwined. I mean, I think he says at the end of the discussion at some point that to purge capitalism of all these moral elements of blame would be to not have capitalism anymore. It's intrinsic to capitalism right. so he's kind of he's, he's combining the economic and the moral um here in a way that they cannot be uh individuated right separately mm. so yeah th i think absolutely i think we'd all agree that having these more identity and social concerns absent the economic analysis is totally empty because they are intertwined with it in a really intimate way and that you have to kind of do both at the same time mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, and then this isn't just some sort of like stale both andism either. Um, because I know that's, that's a criticism that you see a lot of times online, right? It's just the, we need to do everything, but fuck man, we do, you know, the, but it, but it isn't just simply some sort of like, I'm not just like trying to appeal to all sides just because I'm trying to be like the Apostle Paul who is all things to all men, right? But the the value in being all things to all men 
is recognizing the, again, co-constitutive relations, the sort of internal relations that exist between these supposedly discrete units of analysis and recognizing how it is that they inform one another. And, um, and I think that's, that's what's at issue. It's, it's recognizing that there is, um, that there is a certain, I, I don't know, I, maybe I do get a little bit reductive because I do think that there is a sort of like technological logic or a logic of quantity that can actually explain a lot of these other concerns. Like even the value concerns, I think, can be understood within this kind of maybe more subterranean logic of quantification. Um, but I mean, for me, that's just a larger project. But I don't know, man. I, I, I don't know. I, but I definitely do think that we there needs to be a both and here. And, and I know that that oftentimes frustrates people because it can seem like a sort of empty posture to just be like, ah, we got to listen to everybody's voices. But that's not what I'm saying. It's not having a conversation. It's not listening to everybody's voices. It's recognizing the constitutive relations between all of these various sort of arrangements of power. And that's what is is crucial in this debate between political economy and political theology, you know? Yeah, those constitutive relations you mentioned, that's the key, right? Because the the kind of procedural dismissive both andism usually is it's frustrating and it's empty because it's it's purely procedural. Right? It's just yes. let's just hear out the two sides and then move on and do what we're going to do anyway. Um it it doesn't actually have any effect on anything. Whereas I think what what we're talking about here is no, you actually have sort of holes in your analysis when you don't do both sides of these. And um, to do that, it's just to not really do the kind of exhaustive uh, analysis of the subject in hand. So it's doing both sides because you absolutely need to to actually get to the thing as it is in itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I, I haven't read – this is the last thing I'll say, but I haven't read Kotzko's book, Neoliberalism's Demons. I think we're planning to do that in the future as a book club. Yeah? That sound right? Yeah. Cool. Yeah, totally. Um, but I did follow the book event on his blog, the On Unfair Sikh blog, and I think it was the first entry. And I don't remember who it was that wrote it, but um, it was a very interesting sort of critical take on uh, maybe what we might call like a from a, from a critical race theory perspective. Um, but one of the things that the author said that I thought was very interesting was that and, – and I can only take this secondhand because I, I haven't read the book yet. But that somehow Kotzko um, makes an analogy between political theology and uh, kind of like unpacks what they mean as being the sort of like management of meaning and value. So political is the management and theology is concerned with – meaning and value. And I really, 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 really like that formulation. <laughs> um, because I think that's a very simple and also astute way of understanding both political economy and political theology, and then maybe finding that Venn diagram point of convergence that really articulates how they can speak to each other in a very productive manner, like how they can glean from one another, because both of them are concerned with precisely this. I mean, generally, people think of economics as the management of resources, which is a sort of, I think, very reductive way of understanding it. But really, I think from a critical political economic perspective, people who are concerned with value production, it's really uh, the management, the organization, the governmentality of Resources. What resources? The resources of value, the resources of meaning, not just 
do we have enough apples to eat? But even more fundamentally than that is what is food? How does food function as a socioeconomic mediator? How does it function as a nutritional entity, etc.? And the concern being that now they have different tools by which they're going to engage in this analysis, but I really do like that idea of like the management or the governmentality or organization or ordering the namas of meaning and value. And I really like that. Yeah, I like that a lot too, because that that makes clear the convergence between these two spheres that we're talking about, right? The uh, individual material and the sort of social material. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, here, you have to make a promise uh, to me. As I continue down the road of political economy, you have to continually remind me not to forget the macro concerns. Don't let me get uh, turned into like some reductionist who thinks that everything can be answered by, I don't know, DSGE models or something like that. <laughs> Stochastic uh, whatever. Yeah, those fucking things. I've heard those <laughs> words. <laughs> uh. Awesome. Well, let's go ahead and move to our final segment of the episode. This is the Sticky Leaves. It's where one of us gets to talk about something hopeful and bright, something that's giving us meaning in the world uh, that is oftentimes devoid of meaning. And this week, it's Troy's turn to share. So what's going on, man? What's got you all giddy inside? Yeah, so I don't know about giddy, but it's got me It's got me thinking in a positive way. Um, I'll keep it short and sweet. Recently, I watched the Before Trilogy. By Richard Linklater. You've seen those, yeah? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I had obviously heard of them because they're renowned films, but I had never seen them. Um, th- for those who don't know, this is a series of three movies um, made over, I think, about 20 years with mm-hmm. Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy. Um, they're called Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, and Before Midnight. And uh, Before Sunrise came out in, I think, 95 and it was when Ethan Hawke uh, was just, I think it was, it was just a few years after um, Dead Poets Society, kind of like his, his first movie as a kid. Hmm. And uh, he plays an American who's traveling in France, um, just kind of doing his like, uh, you know, gap year type travels and exploring. Sowing those wild oats. So yeah, sowing those oats with his uh, <laughs> terrible facial hair and his uh, Sean from Boy Meets World um, <laughs> poofy hair. Good call. Which I'm, I'd be surprised if there isn't a picture of you from like 1999 where you had the same hair. I tried I my hair. You too, you've had very short hair, though. I know. I tried my hair's too curly. Oh, okay. Yeah. You were, you were more like the uh, uh, the actual boy from Boy Meets World. What was his name? Corey. No, not that curly, but <laughs> like curly? in in between. I mean, I did have a fro at one point, but I, I wanted. <laughs> trust me, I envied like Brad Renfro fro and Jonathan Taylor Thomas. I envied those motherfuckers, <laughs> man. Yeah, so he's he's traveling around France and he meets Julie Delpy and they have this kind of really beautiful, innocent, naive romance um, over, I believe it's just one night. Um, and then they they promise, and this is spoilers for anybody who hasn't seen these, go watch these first. Um, they promise to go to meet each other in a year's time, something like that, uh, back at the same spot. They don't exchange phone numbers or ad- addresses or anything. And... Uh, then before sunset, the second movie comes around and they hadn't ever done that. But then Ethan Hawke has uh, written a book detailing his uh, one night with Julie Delphi in France and becomes a big hit as an author over it. And they end up meeting again. Um, and then I, I don't want to spell any more, but these three movies 
were really beautiful in a way that mm. I w- it's I have trouble expressing exactly what captures me about them because before sunrise the first one is beautiful in a really innocent way because it's just like celebrating the moment and not worrying too much about the lasting effects or the justif- you know justifiability of whatever that they're doing uh yeah it's it's pure it it's sowing oats but that's fine because like that's not always a bad thing and the other two movies strike an extremely different tone that coincides with the age i think of the characters they go from like 18 19 or whatever to late 20s early 30s to them being in their 40s and kind of being uh middle-aged and the the movies strike extremely different tones based upon the experiences and the ages of of the characters and i felt like there was something that captured about about romance and about relationships and about age that i just don't think any movies have ever really captured before there's a lot in these movies especially the last one before midnight that's just not fun it's like mm. cringeworthy to watch because you 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 feel so deeply what the characters are feeling um positive ways in the early movie in the first movie negative ways in the final movie mm-hmm. um but i would encourage anybody out there to go watch these three movies now i watched them in consecutive nights and that Ooh, was cool. really cool yeah because you get this stark contrast because you're so excited after watching before sunrise oh it's so beautiful i'm so happy life is good life is beautiful <laughs> and then the the emotional tones of the next two movies are just so radically different um, and yet I found myself thinking so much about them. Probably the, the, the latter two movies, even more than the first one, even though I obviously like viscerally enjoyed the first one more. Um, they're just beautiful films. I hope that, you know, I know that they're, they're renowned and they're kind of well-known as being contemporary classics, but I don't think they have the same status as like the, the real classic films of the last 25 years or so. And I think they deserve it. Mm. Um, and I hope that they get that status as time goes on because they're they are remarkably classic in the sense of being timeless. I don't think there's any sense in which they're tied to a specific time. Anybody who's been twenty, thirty, and forty is going to have uh, some pretty intense experiences. I think watching this movie, unless you like, and, you know, and we haven't even been forty yet. So there's sort yeah, that of was like, more like an anticipatory fear. Yeah. Oh man, is that really what it's like? Holy shit, that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's interesting um, so w- when did you see them uh though no, i haven't seen the last one i haven't seen oh, before no. midnight no i'm not seeing before midnight i was waiting to be 40 to see it um, <laughs> no no that's uh, real dedication to film experience right there yeah no i because they may not be classics in the popular consciousness but they are classics in the cinephile acting directing community like if you claim to be an actor or a director you have to at some point sit in a conversation and wankily muse upon why you uh, enjoy these movies right from these sort of talk about that from a sec like why from an acting perspective is it because a lot of it was was ad-libbed yeah 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 and actors love acting friendly projects Right. And when the director wants to work with you and let you create, because so much of acting is you are given lines, you're told to stand on a mark. Like the total reductive view of it is David Mamet, where he says, listen, your job as an actor, memorize the lines, hit your mark and say it the way I want you to say it. 
and then <laughs> do it again. Like, that's it, right? And so there's the idea that, you know, actors are just meat puppets. And so actors love a role that they can really sink their teeth into, that they can really bring to life, that they can feel like they're a part of the creative process rather than just being uh, on a string, right? And uh, and having the puppet master, director, tell you what to do, which is why a lot of actors transition into being producers and directors is because they realize that they're really the ones who are creatives, you know, for the most part, that they're the ones who have the creative control over the vision of cinema. It's not that way in theater. Uh, I think I heard... Oh, God, I, I want to say it was actually Tom Hanks that said this, and I think he was absolutely right. He said, um, theater is for the actor, TV is for the writer, and film is for the director. And now he's obviously generalizing and oversimplifying, but there's uh, some truth in each of those as being kind of accurate statements. And I think that's the reason why actors love this film. But directors love it too because it's something that isn't formulaic. Right, And so directors love when they can do something that is creative and not formulaic, that works in a sort of symbiotic relationship with these other actors. Now, some people don't because they're just control freaks and they're like, no, I want the shot to be perfect and every single thing within the frame is under my control. But a lot of directors love the idea of being able to go into a little bit of like managed chaos. This is John Cassavetes talks about this in his biography. Uh, he talks about how he's a jazz man and he likes the <laughs> improvisation in the moment of jazz because that's how he directs his films. And he was an actor first and then he became a director, right? But that's the idea. It's improvisation in the moment. And so I think that's why people love the film so much from within those communities. Yeah, I want to make an analogy between movies and music here. You know, um, acting is kind of like musicianship, right? You appreciate the kind of technical aspect of how good the person is at their instrument, how good they are as an actor. Um, directing kind of seems like the songwriting, right? How do you place the elements in the song so as to sort of maximize um, the emotional effect on the viewer, uh, be interesting over multiple viewings, so on and so forth. Um, and then you also have like the experience of watching the film. Right? You enjoy the film, you uh, empathize with the characters, you understand them, you feel for them in certain ways. And so you have to sort of you know, have hooks in a sense. Mm. Um, I don't want to be so derivative as to say hooks, like just <laughs> pure like, top no, you 40 do. pop stuff. But yeah, so something to grab onto that the audience can experience and have an effect on them and hopefully evolve over time to be more and more, have more and more depth and be more and more mature, right? Depending upon their experiences. And the best music isn't like, you know, Frank Zappa, where it's just like, holy God, these people are incredible musicians. I love Frank Zappa, and he's an incredible musician. But you listen to it, and you forget about it five minutes later, right? Um, the best music combines all those elements. There's incredible musicianship. The songwriting is really interesting and full of depth, and you get a lot out of the experience, both immediately and over time. And that's what that makes this, these movies so great, is because it hits all of those marks, right, at this, like, extreme elite level. So, I mean, I've only watched them each once, but I can imagine going back maybe when I'm 40 and watching them all again and getting, having totally different experiences, but appreciating it for a lot of the same reasons as well. And mm. that seems to me like, you know, why a musical piece is a masterwork. And it's also why a film is a masterwork. Can I, can I modify the analogy or the metaphor and say it's the, the director is a conductor of a symphony and uh, the writer is the Beethoven piece, and uh, the actors are uh, 
components within the orchestra, whoever like the more sort of like integral components are, whether it's the strings or the, the horns, depending on the piece, right? But uh, then you have the costume department and you have the, the script editors and you have even the crafts and the crafts services people that are all kind of fulfilling their role. And the director's job is to create this symphonic piece. But it's different. Like if you go to the LA Philharmonic, it's going to be different with this particular conductor even doing the same piece uh, as a different conductor. And it's because the way that they uh, operate and manage the, uh, the, the various component parts to create the larger symphonic piece is going to vary based on, on that person's and that conductor's particular interpretation of the music and their style. Are they more conservative? Are they doing something crazy and wild and different? Are they, what are they doing, right? And... Um, and then the actors really, I think one of the things, that I think about this a lot in terms of musicality for me, I think that part of the, the way that we can interpret like bad acting and good acting is that there is a musicality that needs to be paid attention to. And bad acting is when you're the horn section or you're the violin section and you're not paying attention to the melody. You're out of time, you're not really pay atten paying attention to the key or the scales or you're doing something maybe a little too much and you're going, going crazy. That's what bad acting is, and that's what the job of the director is a lot of times is to kind of like rein them in because they have the larger vision. Whereas somebody like Linklater is more like an experimental conductor that's like, hey, we're not going to rehearse, but we're just going to come in, and it's like a jazz conductor, right? Kind of like the fucking asshole from, uh, oh, what's that movie? J.K. Simmons? Um, Whiplash. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Like, it's like that. But um, it's like, hey, I will conduct this thing, but let's improvise in the moment you bring your skills and then I'm going to kind of like compose it. Um, I think that's kind of, I, I think that the musical metaphor is actually perfect for it because I do think it's, I, I do think that there is a musicality to to film that um, uh, is underrated or that's maybe misinterpreted because we don't think of it in terms of like music the way we think of like Led Zeppelin as music or something. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I, I rarely think about films in that rhythmic perspective just because, you know, the narrative elements make you kind of separate the plot points object as an like objective perspective, like it's just this already finished piece and you're just addressing different points of it. But it really, it's experienced in a similar way as music, right? It's linear and um, you have to sort of experience the rhythms and the melodies of the plot and the characters in a way similar to music. And it's easy to forget about that, but yeah, it has a lot of those same elements. Hmm. You, know, you know what's crazy, man? Hmm. Before Sunrise was released in 1995, and then the next movie before Sunset was released in 2004, they waited, waited nine goddamn years to address whether or not these two ever met again. Yeah. That's killer, man. And this is like yeah. not a time where you can have 50 different things to care about at every moment. So you can just wait a year and a half for Game of Thrones <laughs> to come back. Right? Right. This is like, yeah, there's not as much out there in the 90s. You would really want to know. Yeah. That sucks, dude. I, I no. feel bad for anybody who was Gen Xer. So wait, when when did this when did when did Before Sunset come out? Two thousand four. And then when did Before Midnight come out? Nine years after that, twenty thirteen. So again, I mean, it's like he's yeah, but yeah, and then he also did that experimental film Boy that's filmed over like what a twelve year period or whatever. Boyhood, yeah. Boyhood, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks. Um, I mean. I just think he's a phenomenal filmmaker, and it's unfortunate that he doesn't get the respect of somebody like a Scorsese or like a Tarantino. Like people don't, he's not on like the tip of people's tongues when they speak of great directors for whatever reason. He's not self-serious like those guys are. You think? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, like, what have you seen Slackers? His, I think his yeah. first movie. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a fantastic film. But yeah. you watch that and you just, you can't help but think this guy has like a, a backwards hat and hasn't shaved in five days and, you know, just like uh, drinks beer and, and makes dumb jokes. But it's still brilliant in a way that Scorsese, you kind of feel like is this eccentric genius and you have to mm. show like ultimate respect to him. There's like a, there's an elitism here, isn't there? I mean, as someone who's worked in the in the film industry, you can, I'm sure, vouch for the fact that there's this like, huge economy of reputations right well i mean that i mean if linkletter largely yeah i mean linkletter is not going to have the same reputation obviously as scorsese scorsese is like a, the god of the film american film community right but um but you know linkletter is going to get people are going to bow down to him but i feel like in terms of uh like audience reception we th- we take him more seriously because you know scorsese's like the uh He's the professor, and he's the guy who does all the, the documentaries talking about film history. And exactly like you said, you think of Linklater as being this dude with baggy jeans from the 90s, probably skateboarding. And he's like, fuck, <laughs> I got a camera, and let's just do some mumblecore shit. But the crazy thing is he literally <laughs> created a genre. Yeah. <laughs> you know, whereas Scorsese has not created a genre. Now, that doesn't mean he's not an amazing filmmaker. That doesn't mean he's not one of the most technically proficient people who can also tell amazing stories. But he didn't really create a genre, whereas literally Linklater created a genre of film that was completely different. It was an event. I don't know. What are, what are your feelings about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Are you excited about it? I have a lot of hesitation. We actually talked about this on the last Show Me the Meaning podcast because we talked about Inglorious Bastards. And we wow. mused on whether or not Tarantino is a man out of uh, time now, that his time has passed, that like hmm. that that he might not be able to persist uh he wants to make two more films well this one and one more film apparently he wants to make 10 um and and we were saying that he might not persist uh as well through the contemporary moments um and i'm afraid that uh once upon a time in hollywood might really demonstrate that i don't know i watched the trailer and i was not impressed yeah i do wonder if you know his last was his last movie the hateful eight yeah, Hateful Eight is probably his least successful movie, at least since like Jackie Brown, right? Um, mm-hmm. He does seem like a guy who tries really hard to exist outside of time, and I think he's done that fairly effectively, right? Um, from Pulp Fiction to Inglorious Bastards and, and otherwise, um, Reservoir Dogs. But it almost feels like in 2019, it's coming out this year, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can't do that. Mm. Like you can't exist outside exactly. of time because we're all hurtling, hurtling towards apocalypse. Um, so yeah, it'll be a huge test, I think. Or at least that's how it feels. Yeah, it feels like you can't. I mean, I think you still can probably. It would just take, it would be an incredible feat if he's able to make a movie that has that same ability to transcend historical circumstance. Well, I have two thoughts release. on this. Yeah, one is uh, I think that he's he's a quintessential postmodern filmmaker and that his whole thing is bricolage and pastiche and like he's just like, oh, we're going to do the shot from this movie and the shot from this movie and you're going to act like the character from this person and this person, right? I think Umberto Eco talks about that. Like you, you can't do love anymore. You can only do love in the way that this other person does love. And that's mm-hmm. that's what Tarantino does. He is a notoriously derivative filmmaker, but in a way that was fresh and perfect for like the ironic postmodern era. But I think in the same in, way early hip hop was sampling things. So it's, yeah. it was derivative in that sense, but it had this holistic creativity on top of that. Right. Or the output of that. 
And now I think people want something different. They're kind of tired of that substanceless, groundless, postmodern thing. We talked about this when we talked about metamodernism, that there seems to be a clamoring for this new sincerity. And even though Tarantino is sincere, no, no, he's not sincere. Even though he's authentic, I think that there is a real lack of sincerity in his filmic output. Even though I think as a human, I think he is. I've heard him talk and, you know, he seems to be on the side of like social justice and he has ethical concerns. But those things don't translate as potently in his film because I think there is an insincerity in his film style that I don't know is going to translate for us currently. But this could mean that 50 years from now, people look back on The Hateful Eight and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and whatever film 10 is and be like, wow, those really were masterpieces. They just were untimely, you know? Yeah, I could see that. I also think that, you know, it's it's so difficult to transcend your time. And maybe we only really see that in retrospect. And it seems like, mm. you know, I, I don't know anything about Tarantino personally. I haven't like read interviews or anything. But it seems like his recent turn, at least with Inglorious Bastards and, and this movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, he's trying to do something like a slight variation on his previous kind of pastiche method, this like reimagining historical fiction kind of a thing. Hmm. Um, and I think Inglorious Bastards was like, it's like one of the, one of the greatest American films I think of past 20 years um, was incredibly successful at doing that. It's, I think it's possible to transcend your time at any time. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it probably now is going to be a much more transcendent feat than it would have in 1994 when, you know, Pulp Fiction came out and kind of changed the film world. Mm. That was like the lazy early 90s. In America, at least, things were good for hmm. a lot of people. Um, not everyone, obviously, but especially people that are in the circles that just watch, you know, art films. So, yeah, maybe it was easier in 94 than in 2019. I think it's still possible to do it. But, yeah, I think it would be even more impressive now than then if he's able to achieve it. I have hope. I have hope, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I like the idea of Leo and Brad Pitt working together. Um, I just, uh, Brad Pitt's kind of doing you, that weird the guy they cast as Bruce Lee? Yeah, he, fuck it, it is Bruce Lee, man. Yeah, I know, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that scene, I know. I don't know, man, we'll see. Also, here's the thing, I'm kind of tired, and I don't know if this is just me or if this is a sentiment that I'm tapping into, but I'm kind of tired of Hollywood patting itself on the back as somehow being an important force for change and i think we just this is one of the things we talked about in inglorious bastards tarantino really does believe that film has the power to change the world i mean that's the whole point the point is is that in his like re-envisioned cathartic revenge tale of jews murdering nazis it's told one through the medium of film but how do they do it they do it at a film screening that is about <laughs> the dominance of german cinema and then how else do they do it they do it by burning nitrate what is it silver nitrate or sodium nitrate film so again, he somehow does think that film has this power for justice, and I'm just not sure that that's the case. And um, La La Land didn't get the love that everyone thought it was going to get. It didn't end up winning, and it's kind of fallen away. Like people don't really talk about La La Land except for like remember how it didn't win, and everyone thought it was going to win. I think yeah. people are tired of love letters to Hollywood, so it would have to be something really interesting and unique, I think, for it to have the kind of power that other Tarantino films have had. And I think in addition to that, um, the kind of hope and optimism about film changing the world, 
I think when it's done super authentically, which I think usually Tarantino does, as you mentioned, that that's the authenticity at the heart of it. Yes. Um, it can be kind of appreciative and beautiful, um, especially since it's it's not like a like a really well thought out nuanced take. It's it's kind of purely libidinal in a sense. Uh, it's not meant to be realistic, right? Um, but can you really do that now, right? I mean, Glorious Bastards works so well, I think, because of the context of you know reimagining this like just murdering Nazis, right? And that viscerally is so attractive. Um, can you do that with you know Leo and Brad Pitt in Hollywood around like the circumstances of Charles Manson and shit like that? Um, that's gonna be pretty hard to pull off. Yeah, I agree, man. But I'm excited. I'm excited for it. Um, if nothing else, I mean, anything that guy makes, I'm gonna be at the movie theater seeing it. You know, take my money, Quentin. <laughs> Have you been to the New Bev, his theater in Hollywood? No, I haven't. That's the one where they do like the double bills of like Grindhouse yeah. films and shit, right? Yeah, I mean, it's sometimes Grindhouse films, but they play a lot of stuff. No, I want to though. I yeah, know it's, it's great. If you're in the Southern California area, check out the New Bev. Cool. Well, sweet. Let's go ahead and wrap up this rather long episode that I didn't think was going to be that long, actually. Um, but uh, thank you guys so much for tuning in. Um, we've gotten some lovely emails, kind of overwhelming emails, actually, this past week. So um, thank you so much for reaching out and asking us questions. Um, sometimes I don't feel like I deserve the praise and trust that some of you have put into us. So um, thank you and definitely overwhelming um so uh if other people want to reach out to us and either uh comment or ask questions you can do that owls at dawn podcast at gmail.com you can hit us up on twitter uh owls underscore at underscore dawn same handle for instagram uh what else troy uh don't forget again if you want to give us a five-star rating on itunes uh we'll read your review and any questions you insert in it on the air and then uh, again, head over to patreon.com slash owls at dawn and you can get access to bonus episodes, the newsletter, and then the ability to get into recommending episodes for episode topics for future uh, episodes here coming up. So we'll go ahead yeah, and yeah. put that out actually this week. So sweet. I think that's pretty much it, right, man? Just one more thing, dude. What's up? Das the Danny Americanski. <laughs> <laughs>